Take your Bibles this morning, and if you're not already with me there, head to Hebrews 5. We were finishing four into five the last few weeks, and I'm finishing this mini-series. I'm going to give you an insight onto what I'm going to do. Next week, I'm going to give you a one-off, meaning a special message I've written that is not in any series, but I really felt like before I take 100 people to Israel, we're going to be leaving the next Tuesday, so a week from this coming, I wanted to give you a message so I didn't split anything up in Hebrews, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about a subject that we need to talk about. We have midterm elections coming up, and while I'll never espouse a particular person nor party, we must get out as the people of God and let our voices be heard, and you can vote your faith in the booth. So I'm going to bring you a message called Courage in a Changing Culture, and I want to show you the the imagery we picked out. This was Karen's idea. It was a great idea. This is the way I see our world right now. We're calling right, wrong, and wrong, right. We truly are, as the old song said, living life upside down. And so things are flipped on their head. So we're going to talk about what does it look like when everybody around you does not love your God, when the people around you, in fact, become antagonistic to your faith. What does that look like? And how can we have courage in that kind of culture? So you get a one-off. Then when I get back with the team from Israel, uh, I'm gonna do just a little mini series in Hebrews 6. Do you know Hebrews 6? Most scholars will tell you is one of, if not the very hardest chapter in the Bible to interpret. It's certainly in the top five. And so we're gonna dig into that. Then I'm gonna break for the holidays, hard to believe that that's upon us, but I'll break for Thanksgiving, Christmas. And in January, first week back, Genesis. We're gonna leave Hebrews for a while at the halfway point. We're gonna roll back into Genesis. Some of y'all been asking about the dinosaurs and such. You will get your questions answered because we're going into the Noah series. And so I'll preach Genesis, that apologetic series called Genesis, Fact or Fiction. I'll start to preach it episodically because if I tried to preach verse by verse for 50 chapters, Surely I'd be dead or Jesus would be back. So we can't do it that way, but I'll begin to preach episodically and then I'll come back next year, Easter time-ish most likely, and we will finish the entire book of Hebrews. We'll go all the way through the 13th chapter and we will do the entire book because it's worth our time. Okay, so that being said, that's where we are. We're learning Hebrews 4.12 together. I decided not to change that. We don't have enough time in chapter five to give you a new verse. So say it aloud with me. Pay attention to the key words and we'll put some blanks up there. You ready? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. How true is that? Right when you need it, in the very moment you need it, the word of God comes alive and God speaks right then. So think about it. It's living. It's powerful. Let's put some blanks in it and go again. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged, yeah, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Yeah, there you go. Our perfect high priest. What did we learn last week? I give you four S's. Jesus is our supreme high priest, our sympathetic high priest, our sinless 
high priest. And then, of course, he is selected. God chose the Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike an earthly priest, Jesus will never let you down. Jesus will never do anything inappropriate, never fall, never fail, never sin. And yet simultaneously, he can perfectly identify with you and encourage you and offer you healing as your perfect mediator between us and God the Father. The writer of Hebrews is pleading with these Jewish Christians, don't go back. What we're gonna see next week when we fly out of here and land in Tel Aviv, and then we will go all over the country of Israel, it's a very small country, then we will go into Jordan. What we will see are a lot of Orthodox Jewish people and variants of Jews that are still within a system of works. And it is my prayer that the Jewish people will come to know their Messiah, our Messiah, that they will understand who Jesus Christ is. He is not just another messianic figure or religious guru. He is the new and better way. He is the mediator of the new covenant. And we see this is a very complicated passage. I'll be honest with you. It's got a lot of complicated statements in it, but we're gonna unpack it and lay it out in a way that I hope keeps the cookies low enough for us all to reach. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, and we'll pick up with verse five. So Hebrews 5, 5. It says this, as, as it talked about God the Father selecting Jesus the Son, now it says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who was said to him, who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And he also says in another place, remember these are Old Testament quotes, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, Yet he learned through obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull or slow of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles or the sayings, the words, if you will, of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food, well, it belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, this is a wonderful passage. It can be a little confusing if we don't know a lot about these Old Testament references. But I pray, God, as you have spoken now, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that it would never be said of grace that we are dull of hearing. It would never be said of grace that we won't use our reason to discern good and evil, a reason that is informed and aligned with and by the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Let us wield it well. Let us be skillful as a trained Olympic fencer. Let us be precise with the word. And Lord, we know that it will then be effective to do 
what you sent it to do. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. Okay, as you're being seated, uh, let me give you a little bit of a point. I'll come back to that S idea. I don't alliterate a lot, but I'll give you the S's. But let me unpack a point that kind of lays this foundation for today. Jesus is our humble high priest, God's resurrected son, and our eternal priest king. As you're getting that down, five and six. So also Christ did not glorify himself, meaning he's a humble high priest. He didn't say, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the best, I'm the sinless one, look at me. No, 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 no. He didn't glorify himself to become high priest, but it was said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. He is the resurrected son. That language indicates resurrection language in this Old Testament reference. I'll come back to it in a moment. And he's the eternal priest king. You say, how do you know that? Because it says in Old Testament reference, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's jump in here. First of all, we see that the writer uses the name Christ. He uses the title instead of the name Jesus to emphasize that Jesus is the chosen, selected one of God, the son of the most high. Christ made it clear while on earth that he had a work of divine appointment. He prayed in John 17, Father, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. In other words, Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own thing. I didn't come to meet my own agenda. I came to do what God the Father asked me to do. Because while Jesus is co-eternal with God the Father, Jesus is eternally submissive to God the Father. That's how we know we can be submissive, but equal in value, dignity, and worth. I must submit to my Father. I must submit to my Lord. And so Psalm 2-7 is quoted here. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And this word begotten has nothing to do with Jesus born in Bethlehem. You may remember me talking about this. It was quoted earlier in Hebrews. It actually has to do with Jesus being begotten from the resurrection, born again, if you will. You say, how can you know that? Well, because I know the book of Acts. And in Acts 13, Paul explains it this way, and Scripture always interprets Scripture. And so I look to other places in the Bible where this is used, and I want to remind you that after Jesus was buried in that rich man, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, that was very close to Calvary, we'll see the traditional site coming up very soon, he began his mediatorial priesthood when he was resurrected and ascended to heaven. Remember, at Bethlehem, he was born through a virgin's womb. Outside of the walls of Jerusalem, there near Calvary, he was reborn through a virginal tomb. And so the resurrected son, the perfect, humble high priest, is the one we're talking about here. You know, he is the, the mediatorial high priest, Job, Job 9. Job cried out for someone to have his hand on God and his hand on man. And Jesus alone fulfills that role perfectly. There's this mysterious figure quoted from Psalm 110 here, and his name is Melchizedek. Now, when we get back to Hebrews after a break, after Genesis for a season, I'm going to be preaching chapter 7. Chapter 7 really unpacks Melchizedek, so I'm not going to get ahead of myself. But what I am going to say is that he was called the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. Salem is the same Hebrew word as shalom or peace. He was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. 
He's this Old Testament figure who alone in the Old Testament was considered to be a priest king. Now, Jesus alone holds the role of prophet, priest, and king, but Melchizedek had an order of priesthood, and the Bible says that Jesus the Messiah is in that line. You might say, okay, Bobby, I get all of that, but why does it even matter? So what if we have a humble, resurrected, eternal priest king? What does that mean in 2022? First, he's humble. If you studied anything about the Greco-Roman gods, if you studied about how the gods who are little g gods, false gods work, and most other gods, including the God Allah of of Islam, if you study this, we become pawns and puppets. And so if you might go to that God or the gods and ask for something, they're just going to see what they can get out of you, how they can play with you. Not our God. Our God is a humble God, a God who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus always wants what is best for the glory of God and for your good. And he's humble enough that when you ask, he is seeking your good. He is mediating for your good. He's also resurrected. That means you and I aren't crying to some dead religious guru. We go to God through a living Lord, a resurrected son. And so death has no hold on the child of God. I know to live is Christ. Simultaneously, I know to die is gain. So I know that as a Christian, this is not all there is. I go to God through a resurrected son. I see God through a resurrected body. And finally, the fact that Jesus is an eternal priest king means when I call on Jesus, I'm going straight to the top. This is why I've never understood a system where you should go to a human priest. Why would I have to go to a human priest when Jesus is my priest? Why would you come and confess to me? Why would I call on Mary and say, hey, Mary, could you talk to Jesus for me who could talk to the Father? Man, I don't need Mary. I go straight to Jesus. I don't need to call on St. Paul because the Bible says I am a saint if I've trusted Jesus. In fact, I think if you call on Paul today, he's going to look down and say, man, you're wasting your time. You don't need to come to me. Go to the one who died for you. We go to God through Jesus. He's the priest, he's the king. Have you ever called and you've gotten customer service or what they're calling service and you try to tell your story, this is what I need, this is what I need, and you go through the whole spiel and they say, oh, I can't help you. I'm gonna have to transfer you. You can lose your religion right then. When Bobby was in the hospital uh, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, of course, I spent a lot of time on the phone with the insurance provider because we knew this was going to be quite the journey. I cannot tell you how many people's names I wrote down and employee ID numbers and all of these different people, and the vast majority said, I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. And so finally, just in sheer exhaustion and frustration, I pleaded, can you please get me to someone with authority that can answer my questions? In Jesus' name, I was trying to be sweet. (laughs) Could you please get me someone with the proper authority? When you go to God, you don't have to beg, you don't have to plead, you don't have to hit two, 12, 14, or 18. You don't have to choose English or Spanish. He hears in all languages at all times. He gives you access because Jesus is on the throne. You don't have to worry about going to the top. He is the top. He is our humble high priest, God's resurrected son, our eternal priest king. Now let's get back to the S's. Watch. He is our suffering high priest. 
Now guys, this is important. Seven, who in the days of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, to the Father, he was able to save him from death and was heard because of godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Sounds a lot like the prayer of crying in Gethsemane. Oh Lord, take this cup from me as he cried and his sweat became his blood. There will be there in Gethsemane in just about 10 days. But Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. He was not to be spared from dying, but he didn't want the wrath of God laying on him. See, Jesus had already prophesied his own death. He prophesied his resurrection. The tone is somewhat indicative of Psalm 22, my God. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus cried in exceeding sorrow, even to the point of death. But Jesus is so unique from the earthly high priest. They did not suffer for the Jewish people. They do not suffer today. Jesus was the priest, but Jesus was willing to suffer, not with the grain, not with the blood, not with the gifts of others, but with his own life. But, but how could he learn obedience? I mean, verse eight does say he was a son, yet he learned obedience. What do you mean learned? This is God in the flesh we're talking about. How does God learn anything, the omniscient one? Well, I want you to think about it. As the fully divine one, Jesus didn't need to learn a thing. He was and is all God. But as 100% man, as fully human, Jesus needed to experience in flesh what we may experience. Therefore, he is the sympathetic high priest we talked about last week, and he is learning what it means to live incarnate in this flesh in perfect identity with us. In fact, Luke explored the same theme in Luke 2.52. You'll recall he said Jesus, the boy, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. How does he grow if he's God? because he's growing in his humanity. He really is all human and simultaneously all God. You said, that's too big for my brain to get around. Well, good, you're not God. You shouldn't be able to figure it all out just like that. It's a lifetime, an eternity of study and growing. And in a sense that we can't fully comprehend, the incarnate Son of God experienced tremendous suffering that allowed him to learn the value of obedience to the Father's will. Now I'll share the following story and what's so fascinating to me, after the first service, one of our newer couples came up and they said, that's my uncle you were talking about. So we have the nephew of this gentleman in our church and uh, they gave corroboration to the story. His name was Jerry Bedsole. He served 25 years as a missionary in Ethiopia. During his time in a famine-ravaged, politically unstable country, Bedsoul saw loving Christians develop out of former atheists. He saw God use even a communist government to build his church. He watched in amazement as a Christian response to a famine in Ethiopia opened opportunities for the spreading of the gospel. That's what's happening after Hurricane Ian right now. Do you know that? God is using that disaster to bring about good. God is not wasting pain. God is not wasting trial or tragedy. God is sending people like our Grace Go teams from all over the country to love those people in Jesus' name and share the truth of the gospel with them. 
Jerry Bedsall saw an entire church, all the parents and all the children, imprisoned for several weeks one time just for worshiping God. But the imprisoned church grew in love and fellowship and eagerness to learn the Bible. He saw believers disowned by families and persecuted by friends, but they remained silent in their commitment to Christ. And Bedsall said this, and I quote him, their families may have turned their backs on them, but they never turned their backs on Jesus. You see, what he experienced was these Christians learned of the value of obeying God by their exposure to suffering. The encouragement from other believers and the strength God taught them and the strength that they gained taught them the importance of unwavering commitment. I would say Jesus learned, if you will, in the very same way. Listen to what Zane Hodges said in his commentary on Hebrews. He said, quote, in a real sense, not fully comprehensible, the incarnation gave the already infinitely wise and perfect son of God the experiential acquisition of knowledge about the human condition. Suffering thus became a reality that he tasted and from it he can sympathize deeply with his followers. You will never suffer as much as our Lord has suffered already. He is our suffering high priest. Third, we like this one, of course. He is our saving high priest, our redeeming, our victorious, if you will, high priest. Verse nine, it says, and having been perfected or matured, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And we have a lot to say about that, the writer says, but it's hard to explain it because some folks are dull of hearing. He's perfect. Now, that does not mean that he was not perfect and he became perfect. Again, teleos is the, the root Greek word there, which means complete, full. So he did everything the Father said to do, and in that sense, he was perfected. He learned and he perfected in personal obedience through suffering. And after passing victoriously through the suffering, Jesus became the source, the captain, the author of our salvation. We've talked about that before, so I'll not go back too much, but it bears repeating that the only way to the Father is through the sacrifice and the salvation of the Son. Not through good works, not through money, not through church, but through Christ and Christ alone. And when it says, I'd tell you more, but you're dull of hearing, that means you're, you're sluggish. The word of God is being proclaimed, but we're not taking it in. We're not listening. It's what my wife likes to call selective hearing. Some of you gentlemen may suffer from it as well. Uh, J. Vernon McGee actually said this, quote, ear trouble today is the big problem of believers. Meaning we're not listening well. You know, for years she told me I was selectively hearing her and finally the audiologist confirmed I have really bad hearing. And so I got a hearing aid. I, I probably need another, but at least I have one. And so that helps. Yesterday, I told her on our way out of town, we were doing the, the NASCAR experience at Bristol. She had bought that for me for Christmas and it just happened to fall on the birthday weekend. And so we were doing, I said, honey, I'm leaving my hearing aid at home. That car is gonna be loud enough. And so the whole day, um, I could see her just grinning and bearing it when I said, what did you say? You say that again. And I was looking intently at her lips. 
which is not a bad thing, but I was looking at her lips to read them because I could just tell you were just putting up with me a lot. And I love you for that. But she just realized, okay, this is his day. This is his weekend. Actually, when it comes to birthday, I kind of prefer to have a month. But this is your time, right? This is your time. And so, yeah, there you go. And so she said, you know, I'm just gonna put up with it. But we don't do well to live that way. The hearing aid actually made our marriage better. A second one may make it even better than that. But the point is that we have hearing problems in the church today. And we're sometimes selective in what we hear and how we obey God's truth. I want you to hear me well. Jesus is the only high priest that can save you today. You will not be saved any other way, which really leads me to these final points that are just pure application. Because Jesus is our perfect high priest, what should we do? Well, before I say it, listen. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need somebody to teach you the first principles of the sayings or oracles of God, but you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. He's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are mature, of full age, who by reason, don't throw your reason out the window to be a Christian. No, by reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. What does that mean? A, we must mature in our faith. Sophia's down there at five weeks old drinking mama's milk. Lucy likes milk, but Lucy is not sustained by milk. She'll be three in January. So the milk no longer sustains her, and that is to be expected with normal physiological growth. Why would that not be expected in the Christian life? Listen to what Paul said. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. I did not go out on the Bristol NASCAR track and drive a Barbie Jeep yesterday. I wasn't gonna pay for that. My wife bought me time in a NASCAR, in the actual car. And then I went with a pro driver and then they strapped me in and said, okay, bub, here you go. And I was on my own, giving it all I had. You don't sign four-year-olds up for that. You don't do that. You grow into those things. I love what Philip Hacking said. He's got a great book called Opening Up Hebrews. He said this, it is true that when we began our pilgrimage as newborn babes needing the ABCs of truth, that is a true statement, Hacking says. But then he says, we must remain ever childlike in our trust. However, childlikeness is very different from childishness. You wanna be childlike, You don't want to be childish. And sometimes in church, we get a little childish. No Christian is called to be a perpetual Peter Pan. Put your big boy pants on and your big girl pants. We are trying our best as a family. Miss Lucy uh, has tried some big girl pants. She's still in those pull-ups sometimes. But you know how that season is when you are transitioning them. You want to celebrate when they put on the big boy pants. Well, the marks of maturity for a Christian are not found in an encyclopedic knowledge of the Bible. Atheists can know the Bible. It's not even a matter of how much I necessarily do for the Lord. It's not a how much do I understand concepts like Melchizedek and and people like that of the Old Testament. But how am I looking and living at the world around me? How are my moral judgments? Am I being caught up in the childish wranglings and jealousies of the world? 
I mean, baby Christians are in constant danger of being picked off by a devil who delights to distract the people of God. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you can certainly lose your testimony. And the reality is we got to have the word of God in us, growing us, maturing us, and the spirit of God guiding us and guarding us. Because this world, just like the world of the, the first century when the writer is writing, needs mature Christians to look to. They do not need churches that are trying to look more and more like the world and less and less distinct. Hey, let's face it, Grace, we are a peculiar people and that's biblical. It is okay to be a peculiar people. I don't wanna look like the world. I don't wanna sound like the world. I don't wanna make the decisions of the world. Man, I wanna reach the world for Jesus, but they can't be reached if I'm just like them. We've gotta be a distinct, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring church that will not compromise and go along with every cultural fad and when they wave their banners talking about this or that we wave the banner of Christ and say he is enough and we can be reconciled through him J. Vernon McGee went on to say, some folks in church want baby talk even from the preacher. Well, if you came for ga-ga-goo-goo and warm fuzzy preaching, you're in the wrong church, bub. We're going to grow up here. We're going to be big girls and boys. And sometimes there are going to be difficult things to hear. But I like what Warren Wearsby said. Listen to this phrase. He said this, pilgrims should make progress. He's just pulling from that 17th century work by John Bunyan who said, pilgrims progress. Pilgrims should make progress. We should be growing in the faith, maturing, and then sharing the scriptures, sharing the truth. You're not gonna grow apart from the word of God. You are not gonna grow apart from learning and sharing God's truth. You can be on every ministry team of the church, you can be a head deacon, but no matter who you are or what you do, if you are not studying the word of God and how to handle it, you are a baby in the faith. You need to learn the word and you need to live by the word. I was doing a, a, a funeral some years ago for a man in our church, he had served in every conceivable position. For decades he had served. But none of his family knew the Lord. None of his children or his grandchildren walked with God. A pastor came back who had been his pastor even longer than me, and I said, Brother so-and-so, how is it that a man could serve in a church like this for, say, 40 years, but never grow and never leave a legacy? He was very childish. You can be childish at you know, 70, 80, 90. You know that. And he never grew. And I said, Brother, how is it that he could serve 40 years? And never leave a legacy. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, Brother Bobby, did he serve 40 years or did he serve one year 40 times? Hmm. See, it's easy to put it on repeat and just do the same thing over and over. I want to know, are you growing? That's like my golf swing. It's horrible. I think I've got that in a message coming up. And you know what? I get my money's worth if I play golf, Bubba. I mean, I love triple-digit golf. Because here's the thing. If I don't practice and I don't, and I don't hardly ever play and I don't, how am I going to get better? You can't just keep doing something the wrong way. You need to learn to grow and get it right. And by sharing the scriptures, meaning it's in me, I'm in it and I'm sharing it. You're supposed to be teaching the oracles of God, teaching the word of God, not always sucking on a bottle for milk, but giving some things away. And then finally, we learn to discern good and evil. When we're mature, by use of reason, we have our senses exercised to discern good and evil. A strong, 
godly, growing Christian uses consistent, constant application of the word of God to have my spiritual senses exercised. I won't try to read the Greek word, but it's the root word where we get the word gymnasium. It looks just like it almost in Greek, gymnasium. I have made some passing comments over the years. Is NASCAR really a sport? I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, by the way. I just wanted to go fast. (laughs) So I I like it. It's okay. And if you want to bless us with a ticket, we'll take it. Bobby and I have gone to Daytona and had some fun at Charlotte and all that. But listen, here's the thing. I've questioned, is it a sport? I tell you the truth. When I got out of that car yesterday, after just 16 laps or so by myself, it's a sport. (laughs) It's hard. It is physically taxing. And I wasn't even going near as fast as those guys. And there were only three or four of us on the track at a time. They would might have 30, 40 or better. The point is, you've got to train the body. Had I had to do that 100 or 500 or 1,000 laps maybe at Bristol, there's no way. There's no way. My body is not conditioned for that. I'm not ready for that. But spiritually speaking, the Bible says we are to exercise our senses to discern good and evil. We're living in a world calling good evil and evil good. Saying that Christians are the problem, saying that Bible believers are the problem. Man, are you kidding me? We wouldn't have the education. We wouldn't have the medical advancement. We wouldn't have the scientific knowledge were it not for the people of God who have been at the forefront of such things until supposedly as of late. So what have we been learning as we've been exercising our spiritual muscles? Let's go. Jesus is our supreme high priest, our sympathetic high priest, our sinless high priest, our selected high priest. As our humble high priest, God's resurrected son and our eternal priest king, we also recognize him as the suffering and saving high priest. And so what do we do then? We mature in the faith and we share the scripture and we discern good and evil. Let me close with this short story. Following the Civil War, A dejected Confederate soldier was sitting outside the the White House on the White House lawn. It wasn't all fenced up as it is now. And a young boy approached him and inquired why he was so sad. The soldier related how how he had repeatedly tried to see President Lincoln to tell him why he was unjustly deprived of certain lands in the South following the war. Now to us today, that sounds weird, right? But in those days, you really did as a citizen have access to the president, but it was getting harder and harder post-Civil War. So on each occasion, the soldier would try to enter the White House. The guards crossed their bayoneted guns in front of the door and turned the soldier away. Well, the boy was touched and he motioned to the demoralized soldier to follow him. When they approached the, the entrance to the White House, the guards came to attention, but they didn't cross their guns. They stepped back and they opened the door. The little boy and the soldier walked on in. The little boy proceeded to the library where President Lincoln was resting. And the young boy introduced the soldier to his father. You see, what we discovered in that story was that Tad Lincoln was the little boy playing on the lawn that day. And nobody was going to stop the president's son from seeing the father. You know, in my office, in a far, far smaller way, when I'm in the writing mode and time with the Lord where I need the word and prayer alone, I make it very, very clear that my door is to remain closed and no one gets through except Cindy Lou or Lucy, and when she starts to walk, Sophia. That's it. 
Nobody else has access because that's the way it is. And I want to remind you, if you long to have access to God the Father today, but you feel as though somehow he is distant or unconcerned about you, if you long to enter into his presence boldly and you feel like there are all of these roadblocks, you're not gonna come through a human priest. You're not gonna come through a church as good as it may be. You're not gonna come through a Christian friend. You are certainly not gonna come through Mary, Paul, or one of the so-called saints. You are gonna have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son, and you can go boldly into his presence because Jesus always has entry with the Father. Trust him today with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. You say, Pastor, how can you be so sure? Because I know him personally. He is Jesus, our perfect high priest. Thank you so much for watching us today. God is doing absolutely amazing things in and through our Grace Baptist Church family. If you'd like to share anything the Lord is doing in your life, feel free to reach out to us through our website or our app. And if you're ever in the Knoxville area, come by and worship with us and our family of faith here at Grace Baptist Church.